as a woman, I personally feel like it, it looks unwelcoming. When everybody, when, everywhere you look is a man saying things to you, it looks a little bit unwelcoming. The women, as fighters, they have a good position. You have uh, women highlighting cards. You have women main, as main events, co-main events. So it's a sport that in many ways uh, is friendly toward women, but at the same time, in its structure and in the final TV product, I still feel like it really caters to men. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is MMA writer Fernanda Prates. She, I caught up with her while she was in Mexico City because of COVID, but she usually covers the sport from her native Brazil. We talked about Ronda Rousey, the politics of MMA, Dana White aligning himself so closely with Trump, um, covering the sport as a female journalist. Um, this is a really interesting conversation. I've been a fan of Fernanda's work for a long time. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy. Sometimes I like delving into the MMA a little bit because it's um, the way boxing and MMA have been jockeying for supremacy has been fascinating, <laughs> the tension that's there. And I think Fernanda offered some, some pretty illuminating insights about that. So I hope you enjoy Fernanda Prates. So you have been covering the MMA since 2009? Yeah, uh, given to, I'm, I have horrible memory. <laughs> but yeah, I would say that's when it started, uh, which was kind of like along with my fandom. It was kind of simultaneous. It was 2009. So walk, walk me through, <clears throat> you're originally from Rio in Brazil, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so walk me to your journey to covering the NBA, I mean, covering the MMA in 2009. There wasn't much of a journey to covering it. Um, it was very, uh, it's even hard to explain because things just started happening really fast. So in 2009, I started training Muay Thai, um, mm -hmm. but basically it wasn't competitive. We started training because it was an exercise and it seemed fun and that's how it began. And uh, at that same gym, they had jiu-jitsu. The classes were right after my Muay Thai class. So I started doing jiu-jitsu as well, um, just for fun. And the conversations were, a lot of them were about fighting. And I got curious, I guess. And I started watching, like in Brazil, we have a cable channel called, called Sport TV. Um, and they would have reruns. And it wasn't just UFC events. They had K1, like different MMA-related things that I didn't even understand at the time. I didn't even know what I was watching. It was just on on Saturdays. And I think me being a nerd, uh, I was training, and so I wanted to be better at that. So I figured I needed to sort of understand by watching. I needed to learn. And then... Um, I, it just got my attention. I just thought the whole thing was just the weirdest um, and craziest. And just, I wasn't a sports fan. I wasn't a boxing fan. I had no, my family certainly wasn't, had no roots in that universe. So um, I just got curious and I started 
watching a lot of it um, as much as I could. You know, as whenever I was on, I would watch it. I would stay up on Saturday because it would start late and it would go on until, I don't know, like 2, 3 a.m. I just watch whatever I could. And I got, you know, more interested in the training. I never, ever trained competitively, but I would, you know, go every day. And one thing sort of led to another. I was working at a paper at the time as an intern, and they basically wanted the cheap labor. <laughs> I was there, I was available. Um, uh, and I started covering MMA because it was just starting to, you know, get people's attention in Brazil as well. Um, so just one thing kind of like led to the other. I started covering almost at the same time as I started becoming a fan. And I was just fortunate enough to be at the right place at the right time. Um, so that's when my quote unquote career in MMA began. Well, and it seems like it, I mean, I want to circle back to just how you began writing as well. Mm -hmm. But it also seems like when you're covering the MMA, it has this fantastic transition with like the rise of Ronda Rousey, which I don't think a lot of people in boxing understand. Like there's this interesting nexus of just how seemingly from the outside, there was a lot of misogyny towards women competing in the MMA. Mm -hmm at least in terms of the tenor of, of how Dana White talked about it. Yeah. And then suddenly, almost out of nowhere, the biggest name in the history of the sport is a female. Mm -hmm. So I want to get to that, but first I just want to get to your writing and, and how, how you got involved with that. And um, just before this transition to the MMA, what, what were you covering? How did you get involved with newspapers and that sort of thing? Yeah, writing is like the thing that I always remember doing in my life. You know, like I don't, I don't know if I believe that there is such a thing as talent uh, in writing specifically. I think it's a lot of work, and you have to really read and practice and hone your craft. Uh, but oh, that sounded pretentious. <laughs> I just think that it's not something you're born with. But uh, in general, writing is something I've always done. Like if you. I can go back to, you know, what's always felt familiar to me ever since I was a kid. And my mom says that that's the thing I always said. Like, I would oh. write stories. So I've always sort of thought of myself as a writer. And then you get into high school and you're, like, trying to figure yourself out. So that really became my identity. I write things. I wasn't writing anything concrete. Um, it was at the time when in Brazil we had, I don't know how big it was in the U.S., but we had Photolog. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Photolog was huge. It was pre-Instagram, but you got to write a lot. So I had Photolog, I had blogs. I was very early on just, just doing that. Um, so that was, writing was all I knew. When it came time to pick what I wanted to do for, you know, a degree when I, when I was going to college. In Brazil, it's a little bit different. Like, you don't get into the university knowing, uh, you don't pick while you're there what's going to be your major. Uh, we don't really have a major, but the equivalent. So you get into it and you have to decide before you do what you want to do with it. So I was 17. What am I going to do with my life? I like writing. Journalism seems like the natural thing, like the practical thing, right? Because you you never think, oh, I'm just going to be a writer. That mm -hmm. seems like insane. So that's how I got into journalism. Uh, basically, I wanted a degree to like show my dad and then figure it out. And I hated journalism. 
hated every second of journalism in school. I was just like, this is not for me. I would never want to be a reporter. I don't like this. I never like getting on phones and talking to people. I just like writing. So I was like, I just want to get to the point where I get to do that and skip all the nonsense. Uh, but I was already, you know, like in the two years into into college. So I just figured might as well go with it. And by the end of it, I was pretty sure I was just going to go in a more like um, academic path, like maybe get my master's, maybe get a PhD, like do something more theoretical, less like reporter newsroom. And I really only took that internship because I had it. I had to, to do it to complete, uh, to get my degree. So I was just kind of like going through the motions there a little bit. Uh, and then MMA happened. And that's when I realized, okay, maybe I can be a journalist and a reporter if it's with MMA. So oh. it all really came together for, you know, for this to become my career. But I wasn't always an MMA writer. This is actually sort of recent. I did PR. I did a bunch of things. Hmm. What did your parents do? My mom is a historian, um, which was another thing that I considered doing. And my dad is actually an engineer. He's oh. very, yeah, he's very much the opposite of the creative arts. <laughs> Well, when you say you kind of fell into covering the MMA with your involvement with various forms of, of mixed martial arts, like, what is it, what are the pros and cons of covering it as a female journalist? Oh, man. Um, luckily for me, when I first started covering, I didn't really pay attention to those things. Um, I was very much... Um, I call it my feminist awakening. <laughs> it hadn't happened yet. I was very blissfully ignorant about my surroundings, right? At the time, I was one of those people, those people, I, it's embarrassing now when I look back, but I was like, one of the guys, like I took pride on just being able to hang with boys. Like that was my whole thing. So it didn't feel as foreign to me. I realized I wasn't surrounded by women in that environment, but it didn't bother me necessarily. Quite the opposite. I thought, oh, this is cool. Like, I'm special. Um, it took me a long time to understand the barriers to being a woman in the sport. And I think most of it is just like, there is this whole, it's even hard to explain, but I think there's, there's, there is a, such a thing as male bonding. And when you're surrounded by men, like you have men who are managers, you have men who are promoters, you have men who are fighters. Um, of course, women's MMA grew a lot during this time. Not that it hadn't happened, but like in terms of just the mainstream, it grew a lot. And it honestly, now I feel like maybe MMA has more parity just in terms of pay and just in terms of having champions who are almost as respected. But, you know, you have this environment where of course, the male managers are going to give things to the male reporters. You have male reporters who are friends among themselves. You have people who question how you got where you are in this very male-dominated environment. Um, you have bosses who are going to promote, who are men, and who are going to promote the men. You have, you know, it's a cycle that I think unless you really start you stop and pay attention to, you don't even acknowledge. So at first, I think it really helped me stay in this because I didn't pay attention to any of that. Mm. I was just going with it, doing my thing and thinking, you know what, if I do me, if I just do a good job, none of nothing's going to matter. And then looking back, I'm like, wow, <laughs> it 
it was a lot. And you see a lot of uh, women dropping, you know, it halfway through because once you start realizing it, once you start really hearing the things that are unsaid, you want it, it's, it's, you want to give up. And I've wanted to give up many times, but I think, I think that's the most, um, that's the most difficult thing. Cause when you realize how lonely you are, how isolated you are, it's tough, right? You feel like you don't really have many allies. Um, I was lucky in a few ways. I had women in the business that I could sort of look up to and who I ended up helping who ended up helping me. But yeah, it's kind of just looking around and seeing all those faces that don't look like yours. Uh, it can be a little daunting. And like, what, what do you think changed as far as, cause I think you're absolutely right. Like when Rousey comes up a year after you start covering the sport, she doesn't just sort of take over the entire sport, but she becomes like one of the most famous people in America, if not the world, as a result of what she was doing in the MMA. I mean, it was staggering. I remember there was like a period of three or four months where she was just on every magazine cover. And in, in a way that I don't know that any male MMA fighter had ever done in terms of widestream recognition. Um, I just wonder like what that was like in a sport where only I think a few years before Dana White said that there won't be women fighting. He didn't want women fighting. If that's yeah. the culture, that just seems particularly fascinating to me. Yeah, Ronda was a, a sort of a perfect storm, I think, because that's like you said, Dana had explicitly said there will never be women uh, in the UFC. And you still heard and, and it's crazy because he said that in, I guess, I think 2012. It wasn't that long ago. When you yeah. look at it now, it seems like, you know, if a person says this now, they're going to get dragged. It sounds almost crazy. Um, so it's really weird to look back and see how far the whole thing has come. But Ronda was really a perfect storm because she had the Olympic credentials, which were something that it's very easy to explain. Right. If you say to anyone, this person has an Olympic medal, they can understand that this is an elite athlete. So she had that going for her uh, in MMA. When she got into the UFC, she was undefeated. She had beaten everyone the same way, the same arm bar. So that's also an easy thing to sell. You can sell a, you can sell an undefeated person so easily. And I know that because when I did PR, you came with that pitch. It's a great pitch. And uh, she had the looks. And it bothers me to no end that this is still a thing and it's still very much a thing um, in every aspect of the female life, in every aspect of women's sports and still in MMA. But she obviously had that going. So she became this irresistible package. And I think that Dana White, um, she's, he says a bunch of, uh, things that I think aren't smart, not just in terms of what I believe personally in my politics, uh, but also in terms of business. But I think even then, you know, you have to realize you're, you're, you're alienating a big fan base, which are women. So Rhonda, she was the perfect package. She came in at a time when it's like he couldn't say no to her. And why would he? It would have been stupid. And then she opened the door to a lot of people. I think even those who don't like Rhonda because the way she left the sport wasn't exactly on friendly terms. It was, a, it was what I call a bad breakup. <laughs> hmm. 
none of the parties wanted anything to do with each other after that. But um, a lot of the women, even those who fought her, who beat her, who lost to her, can't deny that. So she really uh, ushered in a new, she, she opened up possibilities to women who might not have the looks or who might not have, you know, the perfect package like she had, but she really opened a lot of doors in that way. And it is crazy. Now, you know, whenever I look back and just think of just how much happened in that interim when she showed up and like you said, you were absolutely right. I think in terms of mainstream success, she, nobody had ever crossed over like she had. You have guys like Tito Ortiz or Chuck Liddell, you know, guys who had had some type of mainstream projection. In Brazil, you had Anderson Silva, you had Shogun Huo, you had um, Leoto Machida, but the way that she had was unprecedented and only Conor McGregor rivaled it. To me, there is really no comparison. The two are by far the biggest mainstream hits that uh, MMA has ever produced. Well, and, and also I think it was like when you say her looks mattered, it's interesting because in boxing, Oscar de la Hoya in the 1990s also had an Olympic pedigree being a gold medalist, but he was unprecedented, I think, in the history of boxing in that about 70% of the people who bought his pay-per-views were women. And he's winning a Grammy, like a Latino Grammy. Like cl Clearly his looks were a huge component of transcending a barrier that no boxer before or since ever has is that women really wanted to be involved in his career and, and vote with their credit cards to follow him. And he was mobbed at press conferences and that kind of thing. I'm not saying it's, it's a bit of an apples, an apples comparison, or rather an apple and oranges com comparison. But um, I wonder for her also being undefeated was quite unusual in the MMA because boxing, a lot of guys can go undefeated for a long time because mm -hmm. you can kind of curate the, the opponent's selection process a lot easier than when you have a sort of czar yeah. forcing the best fights possible. Mm -hmm. and you don't have much agency, which the MMA has. Um, I, I, I just wonder the way Rousey was able to sort of, I heard a lot of comparisons to Mike Tyson's rise. She had this sort of menacing aura. And then when she lost, it was, it was a really big deal that sort of, again, like transcended the MMA to she became this cultural icon, but it was bizarre. She didn't just lose in a kind of big upset, but then she loses her next fight and then she's exiting the entire sport. Like, I just wonder what that was like. It just felt like a very whiplash kind of effect. Her arrival this incredible prominence and then this exit that almost made you question the prominence in the first mm -hmm. place, whether it was legitimate. So yeah. I just wonder what she represents now that her legacy, you know, with every sport and everything, there's a lot of revisionist history, right? So a lot of people will go and say that, Oh, but I always knew she was a one trick pony. I always knew her striking was terrible. I always, people always knew everything, but that's the thing. She looked unbeatable. I thought she was unbeatable. I wondered, you know, who can beat Ronda Rousey? And a lot of people talked about her matchup with Chris Cyborg, who at the time was, I think, the, her biggest, the, the only person who rivaled her in women's MMA in terms of just uh, the aura. Because Chris had lost her first fight, but hadn't lost uh, in MMA since then. She lost some Muay Thai fight. 
she was a very aggressive fighter so a lot of people just wondered how those two would pair if they ever fought but you know different divisions cyborg is bigger than ronda now looking back it's insane i think that chris would have slaughtered her but at the time it was an intriguing matchup because ronda did look undefeated for a long time did look uh, unbeatable not unbeatable unbeatable for a long time and that's why the odds were insanely lopsided when she right. fought Holly Holm uh, in Australia. And when Holly Holm beat her, it was a gigantic upset. So if that had been, if the, all those people who always knew that her striking was so terrible, if they had seen that in the past, they would have predicted that Holly, who had everything that it would take to beat her, because Holly was a former boxer, mm-hmm. Holly had also was also a solid kickboxer, everybody would have seen that coming, right? And people didn't. So it was... The way she lost was crazy, and then uh, the loss really affected her. She was a, what a lot of people call a sore loser. Agreed that she was a sore loser. What I disagree with is that I think people have the right to be sore losers. We all react to failures in life in very different ways. Uh, MMA is very unforgiven in that you expect the person who lost to like be a samurai and hug their opponent and show up at the press conference and talk to people gracefully. And some fighters, all the credit to them, amazing. They managed to do that. Ronda didn't. She hid, cried. Later, she talked about how after you know she lost, she contemplated killing herself. And if you read her book and you see her mom and you see her, how she was raised, you, you understand how much it meant to her. Um, to be a winner but it was and then she lost disappeared for one year and then you're like and she has a chance to come back and she you know will come back against Amanda Nunes and now looking back again it seemed insane that that fight seemed competitive because a lot of people would have just be like of course Amanda Nunes is going to destroy Ronda Rousey but at the time again it didn't seem like such an insane proposition I if I'm not mistaken Amanda was the the underdog going into that one even as if a slight one, I might be mistaken, but anyway, it wasn't, it wasn't lopsided. Then Amanda Nunes, the current champion beats her very in a very embarrassing way because with yeah. Holly, she got hit by one kick and then Amanda just ran right through her. So like you, you said it perfectly, the whiplash effect, because it was like this unbeatable person got beaten in such a devastating way and then got beaten again in a devastating way. Then she doesn't want to hear about MMA. Then she's sour about the whole thing. Then she disappears. Then she goes into the WWE. And it becomes this thing where it's like her whole legacy is put into question. Because it's like, well, was she ever really that good? Mm. Or was it just a competition? What, um, what are the demographics in terms of women buying pay-per-views or attending fights? Like, How big a, a demographic are they? in the fan base of the MMA. Honestly, that's I'm working on a story about that right now. And that's a, such a tough question to answer. And it's one that I'm trying to answer now because, you know, you had for a while like people inflating some some numbers like Combachi, who is the main pay-per-view provider in Brazil, was saying that I don't know half their half, half the fan base or the subscribers were women or even more than half. Um but it's really hard to tell. Like I have actually asked the promotions now if they have any type of number to give me at that moment, uh, at the moment, and they haven't. None, none of them yet have been able to produce those numbers for me, so I can't give them to you. Uh, but what I can tell you, for instance, we conducted a survey, a fan survey at The Athletic 
where obviously I work as a writer, and we had more than 500 answers, and only 11 were women. Hmm. The rest were all men. What I'm trying to figure out now is what does this mean? Does this mean that the fan base is so lopsided that, that does this mean that it's the people watching? Does this mean that that's the people interacting with the content? Does this mean that it's the people reading? I don't know. Um, I think for a while when MMA had more of a mainstream moment, um, at least in Brazil, MMA had a really big burst in popularity where everybody was watching. You go to a bar and the fights would be on and everybody would be interested. You go to parties and everybody was watching. I think it was more equal. Now you have a more... Uh, that went away, that bubble burst, and you have the more interested fans, and I see more men. Uh, but honestly, I'm, I can only guess by looking, and I am trying to figure it out because if you go on Twitter, it's overwhelmingly male. If you go on the comment section of my stories and the stories of anybody else at The Athletic, men, mostly men. Mm. Um, right now, I'm actually in that effort to figure out what it is. Are women watching and is it just so hostile to them to interact with the community that they aren't talking about it? Are they feeling put off by anything? Is the product too, too male-oriented? Because, you know, you look at the OC and it's simple things. The commentators, all men. Play-by-play, -play, men. You have octagon girls. You don't have octagon boys. You have octagon boys... One in Invicta FC, which is an all-female promotion. So, hmm. all this to say, <laughs> what a huge tangent to say that I, I I don't even know what to tell you here because it's a question that I'm asking myself right now, and I'm trying to figure it out because I think it's an important one to ask. Does it? it what what you're saying suggests that it, anecdotally at least, is very male mm -hmm. in every metric that you can sort of anecdotally assess. It seems male. Is that fair? It is fair because that's how I feel. That's what I see. Um, and what I'm trying to figure it out, figure out is like what part of, you know, these are the people who are talking, who are interacting, who are saying things, men. And the sport is built in a very male way. You have Invicta FC, which is a promotion that is all female. All the fighters are women. The um, CEO, Shannon App, is a woman. But that is one exception. If you look at the UFC, the promoter, male, like I said, commentators, you have at the desk women working, you have Megan O'Leary, you have Karen Bryant, like you have sprinkles of a female presence, but uh, we have what I call the opinion gap. So uh, in terms that women are allowed to hold certain positions, but they aren't allowed to have opinions, mostly. So you look around and it's still very much male. It's very much men in every segment of it. And what my experience as a woman is that, you know, you do get turned off when you turn on the television and all you see in that product is men. You have the men making the decision, the referees. We have one female referee in the UFC currently, Camila Albuquerque, who's a Brazilian. We had Kim Winslow, but those are the two women that I can think of who have ever set foot in the octagon as referees. So as a woman, I personally feel like it, it looks unwelcoming. When everybody, where, everywhere you look is a man saying things to you, it looks a little bit unwelcoming. The women, as fighters, they have a good position. You have uh, women 
highlighting cards. You have women main as main events, co-main events. So it's a sport that in many ways uh, is friendly toward women, but at the same time, in its structure and in the final TV product, I still feel like it really caters to men. It, se it seems also to me, I'm not sure exactly how to put this, but that like if you look at the WNBA versus the NBA, for a casual sports fan, the most exciting thing in the NBA is like dunking the basketball which is prohibitive for, for most female basketball players to do. So it's a different, it requires a different appreciation of the game mm -hmm. to, to get satisfaction of it versus like what the, the laziest, most casual fan generally would say what they enjoy watching. Whereas with women in the MMA, I think the, the physiology compared to boxing where maybe they're not as strong in their upper body generally as they are in their legs I find like women, women in the MMA, it's very exciting. I don't see any fall off from like the like quote unquote action component of it. There's knockouts, there's submissions, there's nothing about it that seems less action oriented than the men. Whereas in boxing, there is a big fall off generally, even that like the really dominant female fighters like Clarissa Shields often says, how can a Ronda Rousey make as much money as she's making and be as prominent? Why aren't I? Is it just a racial thing? And I'm sure race plays into that, yeah. but it also plays into the fact that she's really incapable of knocking people out. She, she's winning decision after decision, and countless male fighters are criticized for that as well. And, they, and the consensus is it's not as exciting as if you're a Mike Tyson knocking through people. Yeah. Rousey was able to do that. She was submitting people. She was getting these quick victories. Many of the elite female fighters are knocking people out. It's very action-oriented. Um, yeah, so I, I wonder if you think, like, are women going to play an even more prominent role in the success of the MMA going forward with more stars and, and that sort of thing? I think so. I think what you said, uh, a, it makes sense in a, a bunch of ways. Like, for instance... Uh, the thing about the knockouts, you're not going to get as many knockouts among women because, well, there's a matter of even just the lightness, right? Uh, in the UFC, for instance, the higher uh, weight division is the featherweight, which is 145, which is one of the starting divisions for men. Uh, and, and then you get the flyweight division for men, which is criminally underappreciated because you don't get as many knockouts there. Right. So that's a factor. Uh, but then you get fights like uh Yoana Yang Jack and Wiley Zhang, which, you know, these are straw weights. They're tiny. They weigh 115 pounds. And they just went at it. Uh, more to your point, yes, the rules favor it because they're not different. Basically, women can do the same. And the, the duration of the rounds is the same. Right. So you don't have anything separating the men from the women. And if you, like we were yeah, saying, if you, if you consider the growth, just if you go from 2012, when, when you're talking about women, 2012, when you're talking about women not even being able to fill that space and how far it's come and so that they can, you know, remain headliners in cards. Uh, I do... I find it hard not to be optimistic about yeah. how far women's MMA is going to go in, in comparison to men's MMA. And I think not that long ago, there was this idea that women's MMA was more scrappy and 
in it can be a compliment in that you get more action but also it was derogatory in that oh they're not as tactical right so you might get more exciting fights because it's sloppier so they're not as as good technically um and now i think that opinion is changing with people like commander nunes like you said ronda had a very digestible style and she was very quick and it's very easy to root for that and then at the same time you have people who still feel weird about seeing women getting hurt uh people won't say that as often as they used to 10 years ago but i know that a lot of people who are actually commentators who are involved in the sport deeply still feel weird about seeing a woman bloodied up we even had this conversation not that long ago about stoppages Mm-hmm. Um, one fighter, Aspen Ladd, had her fight with Jermaine Rondami stopped really early in the fight. And she appealed the stoppage, saying uh, that she felt like her gender had gotten in the way, that maybe the ref had stopped in, had stepped in too soon because she was a woman. The, the appeal didn't go anywhere. She still lost. And honestly, I don't know if that case specifically was that it's hard to even tell right in these situations because bias is not something you can measure like you can sure. it's not that the person is an asshole and they decide oh they're women therefore they can't get hurt but we're still people living in a society and working with biases that aren't just gonna go away so i feel like that's slowly being chipped away at like slowly people are getting used to because that's the only way you're gonna get used to getting seeing women get in the face right is by right. seeing them the same way that I always say you need more women in the booth, you're, you're going to find women's voices weird commentating something if you're not listening to them, if you're used to only men doing that. So I feel like we're evolving. I am optimistic. I'm not optimistic about many things in life. <laughs> I am about this. I feel like mm. we've come a long way from not even wanting to see them there in that space to accepting sort of re- certain realities from not saying that women aren't as technical from accepting that they can be just as technical as the men and you know from not accepting women getting hurt and to accepting that yes you're gonna have bloody noses and dislocated jaws just they signed the same contracts as the men did i think we've come a long way yeah. uh, in a short period of time so i do think that you know i am optimistic about the role that women's mma is going to have you know i don't know if it's ever going to be equal it's hard to catch up it's a long time to catch up, but um, I do I do think that we've come a long way, and we still have we're still gonna go a long way in a in a short period of time. Yeah, and I mean, I just uh, what I meant with with the MMA having like a much wider array, array of methods of attacking is just that by allowing kicking and submission, it's not just punching, which doesn't mm-hmm. really play into women's strengths for knocking people out. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just phys- physiologically yeah. compared to men. So, um, so I I want to just turn the page a little bit um, to kind of the meta of of the MMA, just to get your your sense of it. Um, Dana White said that the MMA's popularity could eclipse the NFL. Um, and in 2016, the UFC had its best year ever with five events topping a million pay-per-view buys um which which was totally unprecedented in the history of the sport and then there's all this talk about it overtaking boxing in the united states and and globally um and then this massive sale what is it 4.2 billion that dana white sold it for to wme but it's fascinating to me 
I guess Dana White is not the most reliable about the facts, like when he gets some pushback of the actual yeah. data. <laughs> so this talk that MMA has a very young fan base, uh, according to an article I did for Bloomberg, I think last year or perhaps the year before, the average age of a UFC fan is 49 years old. And it's actually skews a little older than boxing, which isn't to say that boxing fans are all 20 years old. Like they're not this perfect yeah. target demographic, but you're hearing a lot of this yelling about how dominant it is and they get this big sale, but all of a sudden the biggest pay-per-view that the MMA has ever had is when you bring in boxing's biggest figure to do it and it becomes this incredibly bizarre <laughs> sideshow event. So I just wonder, as the MMA becomes incredibly viable, and like the article that I was doing about it for Bloomberg was essentially looking at boxing insiders, some of which like one attorney said uh, 2016 was an un unprecedented success for Dana White. On the strength of that momentum, he, he sells the organization for billions of dollars to WME. Um, one quote I have from Kurt Emhoff, an attorney who had represented both MMA fighters and boxers, was, worst case scenario, you've just bought uh, MySpace. That this is something that is not going to go up and up and that the yeah. figures have been goosed a lot and um, where is this going to grow? And, and yeah. I wonder just with the heavy political tethering that Trump and... Trump's supporters and Trump's kids have made with the MMA. Um, its audience seems very white compared to mm. boxing, which predominantly is a Latino sport now, more than African-American or, or any other ethnic group. Where do you see the MMA going with this infusion of money and uh, it, it promising this ascendance to overcome the NFL, which is a pretty lofty goal without a lot of evidence to support that it has a hope in hell of doing that any more than any other sport. I mean, it seems like every sport in the United States is a niche sport except the NFL. Yeah. So what is it like covering where you have somebody <laughs> who's making these kind of claims that there's not a lot of evidence to back it up, but there's some big money being thrown at it to suggest that, you know, what's the truth of it? It's very hard. Uh, honestly, like I am not... Um, I don't even touch numbers. I am fortunate enough that I don't have to because I don't, I'm wrong about most projections. I, when the deal came through and it was such, like you said, just such high numbers, I was very surprised. I was like, whoa, I was not expecting it. I find it hard to project anything when it comes to MMA. Well, first there's a market thing for me, uh, I, I was born and raised in Brazil. I don't even really understand the weight of the NFL uh, the way that Americans do, right? Like, we don't... It's not a thing. It, like, it recently, a few years ago, we started, like, caring about the Super Bowl. <laughs> but mm -hmm. it's not a huge deal in Brazil. So even just the cultural weight of football is different. And the way that MMA hit Brazil was very predictable in some ways because Brazilian sports culture... It's very much um, what I always say is like we like soccer and we like winners. So what happens in Brazil? We have these sports cycles. We had we have soccer as our main sport that nothing will ever be, 
And then we have, you know, volleyball, we have a good team and they're winning things. So that's our sport. And then at tennis, we had Guga for a while. So that was our sport. And then Formula One had its moment, obviously, in the early 90s with Ayrton Senna. And that was their thing. And then, you know, there was a gap in champions and MMA was producing that with Anderson and then, you know, with JD, with Junior Dos Santos, with Jose Aldo. So in Brazil, it was easier for me to explain because it made sense. We were winning at that at the time. Uh, we had the roots of MMA for us with Vale Tudo, which was already like, it was already in, in jiu-jitsu. So it felt like a national product in many ways that we can be proud of. We had many Brazilians doing it and we had many Brazilians winning at it. So it made a lot of sense for us. For me, it's a little harder to piece together American sports culture. I read about it. I listen to podcasts about it, but I haven't experienced it. And But it seems like a more, like you said, everything seems a little niche and then you have the NFL. But at the same time, what I, the experience I get with the NFL is that more and more people are becoming aware of concussions more and more people are becoming aware of how you know hard of a sport it is on the body and my under what i would guess is that younger people are going to be turned off by the nfl over time so i don't see the nfl as this unbeatable entity not that i think that the ufc is ever going to surpass it but well, this to say this for me, it's really hard to project in terms of numbers and just the ideas because I don't, it's not part of my culture. It's not something that I'm ingrained in and it's not something that I really, uh, I think I understand properly. I have my questions about where, you know, where as to how far MMA can go. Uh, I've been asking fighters, like, how do you see, do you think MMA is still going to be viable in 25 years? And it's a question that I have a tough time answering. I don't know if it's hit its roof. Or if the opposite, you know, like as people become, you know, as people are more, they have more options and they get to uh, customize their sports and their consumption of content more and more um, if it's, if it's going to get bigger. I don't see it growing a lot further, you know, uh, going a lot further than it has, but um Honestly, I do not have a good answer for it because I just, I legitimately, if you ask me, I don't know where MMA is going to be in five years. And, but like I said, I, the, the numbers, the figures, whenever it comes from Dana White, like we take it with a grain of salt and there's such a shroud of secrecy around everything, fighter pay, the deals and negotiations, like you have some reporters who are going to dig into that and then we have a better glimpse, the antitrust lawsuit that um you know the afc has been battling that you know you, you you're able to get better glimpses at the numbers but they're also unreliable you have so little you know concrete things i'm sure with the story that you're doing for bloomberg it wasn't easy to get access to those numbers no. so it's really hard to sort of have those hard projections as to how things are going to look in just a few years from now well, no, and people are very defensive about it because it's a complete black box, as you say. Mm -hmm. Is if there's no transparency about fighter pay, generally that's not because fighters are being really well paid. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. and, and the antitrust lawsuits, as you say, and and on top of that, while 2016 was this banner year for the UFC, only a year later, Rousey loses the biggest star in the sport, arguably, or Conor McGregor. Um, Anderson Silva and John Jones both test positive for PEDs. Brock Lesnar, a big attraction, test positive. 
Um, Rousey leaves for the WWE. George St. Pierre uh, comes back and has a pay-per-view that it's not bad, but it's 900,000 buys. None of this is suggesting skyrocketing sales, you know, the way that that sale kind of, I think the people who were investing that money were hoping that the sport was just going to go up and up. That is not where it went the following year by, by any stretch. And I just wonder, like, politically for you, I mean, every day there's a press conference now with Trump talking, and I remember quite, the, I'm 30 miles north of New York City now, um, not long before I left, I saw Trump showing up at, at Madison Square Garden for a fight, and his sons are pretty regular people. What is it like having a sport that's so heavily associated with this administration and the popular supporters of Trump because it really has a pretty strong identification with that fan, the fan base and, and him and his supporters in general. Uh, the same way that it is here in Brazil with the Brazilian fighters in Bolsonaro, who is okay. our Trump on steroids, right? Yeah. Uh, most fighters came in, came to, to support Bolsonaro during the elections. The vast ample majority of them some of them were just quiet. None of them were anti-Bolsonaro, right? Um, so you do have this sense. And again, I'm always cautious because I don't, I don't, you know, it's hard to understand how much of it is you projecting, how much of it is you in the bubble, because I am so in MMA that I don't know how it is in other sports. And I asked this question, like when I had my podcast, I would ask the same question to my guests because I was wondering, is MMA more right wing? Is MMA more conservative than other sports? I don't know. What I can tell from my experience in MMA is that it feels extremely right-wing. It feels that way um, in the fan base, and it feels that way a lot with the upper echelon. Obviously, like you said, Dana White, it, it's not a secret. He spoke in the Trump rally right. um, or at the Republican convention. Um, right. It's no secret. That the you know even just now Trump was talking about reopening sports and had about having a meeting with Dana White so it's it's no secret and then you know you have many fighters who are actively pro Trump some fighters who are more quiet about it and you have very few who are actively uh, speaking out against Trump the same thing against Bolsonaro for me politically I don't hide it uh, I'm very left wing. Um, you know, more what now is considered extremely to the left because Bernie Sanders apparently is extremely to the left to people. I don't, to me, he's just like a regular left wing candidate. But anyway, that's a whole other deal. But yes, for me as a person who politically identifies with those values, um, it's intense. Um, I hate it. <laughs> I don't like it because, you know, it. You know, we all know what Trump and Bolsonaro have become tethered to, you know. I think Bolsonaro has been more vocal about the way he feels about certain things in Trump. But, you know, we know what a lot of what what they're saying carries. And to me, that feels very hostile. And you look at a sport like MMA where, you know, it's super varied. You look at the roster of champions, you don't have a bunch of white guys. You have a couple of white guys. You yeah. have a Brazilian lesbian a woman in Amanda Nunes who is from the Northeast of Brazil who, you know, 
here it's a little different for in Brazil to talk about white and non-white, but you know she's clearly not white. So you have that. You have such a varied roster. You have such a varied hall of champions. You have such a you know rich history, and I don't like seeing you know it sort of it feels a little hostile to even the legacy and even the heritage of MMA to have it be attached to people like Trump. Um, and, you know, you get that sense when you speak about it, when you write things about it, you know, at the athletic, even at the athletic where our fan base is a little different. Like I used to work at MMA junkie, which wasn't a subscription and the comment section was like you would imagine an MMA comment section to be, you really had a sense of that, you know, like if you said anything uh, that felt remotely, I would not even say anti-Trump, but not pro-Trump, you get the attacks, you get the people coming at you, you get the people on Twitter, you get the... So I can't speak on behalf of everyone, but as a progressive writer, I personally hate it because I don't, I don't like none of what those people represent. And, you know, it's, Again, you have to sort of try to separate what is your projection and what is how you feel and what is how is your you just sort of like feeling is defensive about things. But uh, it does feel like this is a sport that really identifies with those values most of the time. And it's hard, you know, as a person and as a writer and as a journalist and as a reporter and as someone who has to be neutral about certain things and who has to interview certain people and who has to cater to a certain audience to reconcile all those things, right? The professional you, the personal you, the political you, but uh, I've been managing sort of, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I am interested in how, what it's like to cover a sport that is so heavily identified with this divisive administration but also it seems like the whole, uh, not the whole, but in part it seems like a sport that is branded with this baked into it, which is very interesting. Because I can't think of another sport that has sort of had this connection to a presidential figure. Like really in any kind of era, it's not like, like, like the Trump family is pretty commonly there and it's clearly something that Trump likes to tweet and likes to be associated with in a way that's more than just showing up at a sporting event. It, it's, it does seem like it's very much signaling to a base. Yeah. I don't think it's always felt like that, but certainly, and again, uh, both in Brazil and the U.S., it started feeling that way. I think also because it's become more polarized, right? I feel like mm. the Trump elections were extremely polarized and the Bolsonaro elections in Brazil were pretty polarized. So I do agree that in those, in recent years, it does seem like it's become more aligned uh, and catering to that base more clearly. I think because the circumstances sort of like force you to be in one side more than it has in the past, Yeah, you know? So I think that's my read on it, sort of. I think it has to do a lot of with the way that the, poli the, the, the that politics are shaped right now, that the UFC has sort of felt like it's aligned itself more clearly with those values. I can't speak uh, for other sports, because in Brazil, like you had soccer and things, it's it felt that way toward Bolsonaro too. But I agree with your read in that it, it feels that way. I just don't know if it's, how much of it is the UFC and how much of it is just the way that the world is right now.
Yeah, I, I, mean, I sense. No, it does make sense. I was just trying to think. Like, I mean, I'm trying to work through it now. Like you know. other sports who might that might have that same sort of. Yeah, well, just if you would see a a president show up at a football game, it's just the president. It didn't feel like it's for his party. I don't know. Like it just has a different feeling to me when I see the UFC covered by other journalists to talk about the Trump family showing up at events and their connection. You know, like when has the commissioner of another sport spoken at the, the at one party's rally? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I don't know an example of that. So usually the ties are more secretive, right? Or like you know that they're there, but hardly ever it becomes so apparent. Because I mean, sports is usually the place that's a safe place for both. I mean, for the whole array of political views to come together and not talk about politics. I mean, in boxing, there's lots of nationalism all over the place, you know, great rivalries between nations, Puerto Rico, Mexico, um, Polish immigrants, the United States have a huge fan base, um, predominantly in Chicago, um, Texas, obviously with Mexicans, but it's not Bernie Sanders supporters. It's not a fighter signaling to Bernie Sanders or mm-hmm. Biden or that kind of thing. It's just, it does seem distinctive how, the, how it's, evolved in the UFC relative to other sports, at least just as far as I can think in the last 20 years, I can't think of another event that was really heavily politicized in sports to one party. Honestly, like I I can see what you're saying. I think I'm so far into the bubble that I have a hard time even detaching myself from it and looking at it this objectively. Um, But I, I mean, what you can say is like Trump, I think he was only at one event that I can remember recently. That was mm-hmm. the MSG one. And um, his offspring children um, have been to his child, has been to another, uh, uh, to other events. But then you have those, those moments, like you said, of Dana speaking at rallies and things like that. It really, but honestly, like in terms of just the, the partisanship and things like that, I think it became more intense and more clear to me or even more hostile with the, the elections and, you know, for the past four years. Yeah. So I, I don't, yeah, I don't know in regards to other sports, honestly, just because I'm not that into the day-to-day of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you have the WWE, which I don't consider a sport, but... Um, they, I think they would be more aligned to the same types of, of politics, but... For sure, yeah. yeah, that's true. There is an overt connection, that's for sure. And I don't know how it is with other sports, but it does feel a little more partisan. Um, well, and, and also, I would, I would argue, I mean, you're absolutely right. Obviously, Vince McMahon has been very vocally Republican. His wife is a Republican um, politician, um, but both of these sports also seem to be a little bit refuges for white American male fans. Mm-hmm. As it the does. other sports become a lot more diverse, wrestling and the UFC definitely seem to, when you look out at those crowds, it's not like a boxing crowd yeah. at all. It's really <laughs> it, it, easy to tell a side-by-side sort of thing. Um, so I want to ask you about 2017 with what it what it meant looking ahead to Mayweather McGregor, did you cover that event? Did you go there? 
No. Um, so at the time I was working for MMA Junkie and um, for those who don't know, MMA Junkie is one of the top all MMA websites. Uh-huh. I'd say the rivalry, you know, I could say that it's MMA fighting and Junkie. You have um, uh, Sugar Dog, Bloody Elbow, but in any case, so I was working for MMA Junkie at the time and I worked as a Brazilian correspondent. So I wasn't really attending events in the U.S. I only attended a couple. Um, I didn't go to that one. But, you know, you, I had to do the day-to-day. And it was entirely dominated by Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather. Entirely. Like, that was the main thing. That was our main focus. And I remember when they first started even bringing that idea up, I thought it was ludicrous. I was the first person to go and say, that is never going to happen. You know, to me, it was just like a marketing ploy. <laughs> like people are just saying this so they can get clicks, so people can get money, so that you know they can, so that boxing can benefit from what Conor McGregor is right now, and so that Conor can benefit from the because that's the thing, you know, right? When we talk about MMA, when you put it next to boxing, that's when you realize how niche it is. Because you can talk about the decay of boxing, you could talk about the rise of him, you could talk about all the aging fan bases, young people, you could talk about all of that. When you put them together, when you discuss sheer numbers, when you discuss, you know, just mainstream appeal, you understand how niche MMA is. So I think it seemed like a mutually beneficial conversation at the time that I honestly, and I can admit my mistake because I said you are dumb and ridiculous and insane if you think this is ever gonna happen, right? But whenever it was talked about, I had to write something about it. Whoever was on had to write something about it. So it felt, it felt big, even when it didn't feel like it was feasible. Leading up to the whole thing, of course, then you had the promotion and man, I, it was insane. It was everywhere. It was everywhere. It was, it was huge. And it took over the day to day. You could write about whatever you wanted to write, but you know, people wouldn't read it. People didn't care about it. It was Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather. And a lot of us, I can speak for myself, of course, I hated it. I hated every second of it. I wished that wasn't happening. It felt like bizarre world. And it was annoying that, you know, Conor tweeted A, and you're going to get five times more views than that. And you're going to get from this very elaborate story about this very, very rich thing that is happening outside of it. But you couldn't escape it. And I know me and a lot of my colleagues were frustrated just by the fact that we had to keep writing about it, that we had to keep talking about it, especially a junkie because it, it is clicks driven. Now I get to work in a subscription place, so I have certain luxuries that I didn't have then. But um, I just remember it taking over everything. I remember just waking up and going to bed with Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather and being extremely annoyed by the whole thing. <laughs> well, and what does it do where the fighters there's all these allegations that fighters are dramatically underpaid in MMA mm-hmm. relative to boxing, at least at the elite level, yes. or maybe, maybe in general also. Um, but once a, a prominent, well, the most prominent boxer steps in with an MMA fighter, that McGregor is making a guaranteed $30 million purse. And, I mean, I'm looking at some reports, some claim to earn a hundred million dollars with the pay-per-view and that kind of thing. Um, what does that do for the sport where somebody steps outside of the M- MMA to have this sort of sideshow event and gets paid so dramatically more than a sport where they've 
been this dominant global figure. Like, I mean, I'm just wondering how sustainable it is for Dana White and the sport to not be anywhere close to to the kind of paydays that boxing has been able to produce, for example, just to use a an easy yeah. combat sport by comparison. Yeah, Cotter McGregor was a double-edged sword for the UFC in many ways, and I think that was one of them. Um, one of them, like we were saying before, right? You were saying that, you know, the the the... The way that MMA managed to get certain numbers at a certain time had a lot to do with McGregor. So the UFC tethered itself to McGregor in a way that um, was a lot very beneficial for a short period of time and hurtful, hurtful in the long run because it mm-hmm. made them very dependent on McGregor and McGregor's whims. And um, as a business, you don't want to be tied to a single person, right? And I think with boxing, it sort of exposed that side of it that him in a single fight with the boxer could make enough money that he could just simply never fight an MMA again. And that became the whole conversation. We all just figured he was going to retire after that one because why wouldn't he? To go back to fighting for these small figures. And it put, certainly they have seen a position where they had to negotiate much much bigger pay for him, I would assume, because he just came from, I'm sure he knew he wasn't going to make enough as much as he had made for that fight in in his his future in the UFC, but I'm sure he wasn't just taking the same type of money again, right? So I think for the UFC was good because it gave them that sort of immediate projection and it gave them that immediate feedback. Of course, Dana was loving every second of that. Clearly, you could see it at every step of the promotion. He made sure to include himself in the UFC brand. So it was very beneficial for that short period of time. But uh, And I think that's an, a thing with the UFC that I feel constantly is that they 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 don't have a long-term plan for things. And that's right. also why I feel like it's hard to even project things with them. It feels like they, okay, we're taking advantage of this now. We're going to milk it for what it's got, and then we'll figure it out what comes next. And that's what they did with McGregor. In regards to the pay, though, I think, though, it was very clear from, you know, from the start that the purses were no, nowhere near for the bigger stars. But then you in the bottom tier, sort of, like a UFC fighter will come into the UFC making more than a fighter at that level in boxing, much more. So I think there's just such a huge gap in boxing, right? You have all those people here and the people up here making so much more money. And in the UFC, you have a smaller gap between the middle tier guys and the top tier guys. So it's more encouraging for newcomers because they're getting paid, I don't know, I think, I, I, I honestly don't even know now. At one point, it was 10, maybe 10, 12 grand to show yeah. up, and then another 12, 10 to 12 grand to win. And then, with the opportunity of getting a $50,000 bonus, um, which is kind of a lot, but almost also not, because you're going to fight three times a year tops, right? If you're lucky, if you're not injured. Sometimes some, some fighters manage to get four fights in a year, five, but those are huge exception and that's the money that's going to go to your manager the money that's going to go to your training the money that's going to go into taxes you know so it's not a lot but i think for an up-and-comer boxer it does seem like a lot and then you have the huge gap um so i do think that it exposed the ufc in a way that it's like so your biggest star might just walk away from your sport with one single fight in this other sport Right. Which is nowhere near the, the money that the other guy is making in the other sport. 
But um, at the same time, in terms of just the fighters among themselves, I don't feel like they were shocked or, you know, surprised by that realization. Well, it just seems like in the UFC more than boxing, and, and maybe this helps the UFC in the short term at least, is it does seem to kill its idols very quickly. Mm-hmm. Whereas boxing, you get a lot of longevity. Floyd Mayweather was forced to take a lot of risky fights early in his career, very competitive fights at weights he didn't necessarily want to have, at a time he didn't want to necessarily do it, because he was not marketable as a fighter that people paid to watch win. Once he adopted a personality, a persona, where people were paying to watch him lose, and he, had, he was an A-side, he could take huge advantages in when he was fighting people and really mitigate a lot of the risk, which he couldn't do at the b- beginning half of his career. In the UFC, you just don't have that agency because, yeah, you're getting like a bounty to fight a more exciting level of fighting. And people like Anderson Silva, when he was the top fighter in the sport, was heavily publicly criticized by Dana White for not winning spectacularly sometimes. Um, It's interesting to me that you have to accept so much more risk in the UFC for a lot less money, where all the UFC cares about really is, are they putting on the most competitive fights for an audience? But you can't really shield yourself with a manager to look after your own interests very, very adequately at least compared to, to boxing, if you are an A-side fighter. Yeah. No, and that's absolutely right. And that's another thing that, you know, there's the conflict there because a lot of people will complain that in boxing, the fighter is being built and fed cans, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, because that's how they do it. It's the culture. You build that fighter that way. And then uh, you see, like, it's a good thing because you get to see these it feels like the person is being tested, right? It doesn't feel like you're being duped into thinking that guy is good. It's like, no, we're seeing this guy's good because he's getting high level challenges. But like you said, you burn through talent fast. So you have to look back on a guy like Anderson, who at a time was beating everyone and getting criticized because the middleweight division wasn't amazing. He wasn't fighting the most uh, exciting fights. And then he would go up to light heavyweight where his title wasn't on the line and then have amazing fights because that's where he fe- he felt he didn't have a lot to lose. So he right. could afford to, you know, fight the way that he did spectacularly. And you, you get annoyed and you complain and you hear the fans complaining about that type of fight. And then when you look at the lifespan of a UFC fighter, of an MMA fighter in general, uh, in terms of their physical health, of course, it's not a sustainable sport in the long run. And Floyd Mayweather, I think I'm not a boxing expert by any means. I think his longevity had a lot to do with his fighting style, maybe because, sure, yeah, he wasn't subjecting himself to the amount of damage that some of these guys in MMA are, or even in boxing, uh, who absorb more damage than he did in his career. But um, it's to me, it was one of the main uh, strains in the relationship between MMA fighter and fa- fighters and fans, uh, because you, you, there's a lot of criticism toward athletes who do what Anderson did for a while there, and then you have to understand their side of it, because like you said, it's not a, a lot of money. And then in order for you to be retire after 10 years on what you made in that career, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. It's a very small group of fighters who are going to be able to have that, to do that. Uh, and retire, quote unquote, because they might they they're gonna 
have to work as coaches. They're going to have to work in some way. They're not going to make enough money to just sit on it unless they're very smart, they're very good about their investments, or you know, and lucky. So the fighters, the MMA fighters, they have to be more selfish because they don't make enough money to be able to have to retire early on the money that they made in their short careers. And you have, like you said, promotions that are very um, short-sighted. They have to sell that fight then. They have to sell that pay-per-view then. They're not all that worried. And you see that constant tug of war whenever there's new talent. Because you have guys like Sage uh, Northcutt, um, who came up in the UFC and they were very high on him. And a lot of people were complaining that there was a lot of undue attention because he hadn't proven himself to be that good. And there was a lot of promotion on top on, on him. And then, you know, he's thrown to the wolves and then he loses. And then the UFC is just not interested in him anymore. So you have the constant, constant struggle. And then you go to Bellator and you have a guy like um, MVP, Michael Page, who is extremely exciting his style is reminiscent of Anderson Silva, you know, because he's very theatrical. And then you have the complaints that he's being too coddled by Bellator, that he's getting side cans. I think the calendar and MMA doesn't allow for a lot of growth because you're going to fight, like I said, two, three times a year tops. So how long can you go on protecting them without wasting this guy's athletic prime? Because then mm -hmm. when he gets the time for him to actually fight the challenges that you want to see him fight his fastest athletic prime. So that's a weird dynamic that you have going on in MMA that I don't know how it is in boxing, but uh, you have this thing where you want to see these guys tested early because you don't know, you don't know like if they're going to tell their ACLs and be out for two years. Sure. You don't know, you know, so you want to see them get tested early. You want to see what they can do early. You want to see they reach their peaks early. But at the same time, you understand that this is a sport that, a sport that is not paying them that much and that they have to protect themselves um, as investments because if they're no longer good investments for their promotions, they're just going to be tossed to the side. So I don't know. I went on a tangent, but that's kind of, kind of how I see about it. There's this constant tension in terms of building prospects and building icons and they're very disposable. Mm. So what is next for you? Like, are you, are you looking to cover the sport long-term or what, what's the next chapter in your process? Uh, that's a tough question. I never think of myself as doing anything long-term. Like in MMA, I, I think every job I left, I, I was like, I'm like hey, I think I'm done with MMA. And then I get a new opportunity to be like, I <laughs> so this is how it's been happening i don't see i like where i'm at right now the athletic is good i get to write the stories that i want to write i get to be creative and i get to go a little bit deeper on things so right now i see myself staying. but honestly like if i'm no longer with the athletic next month um i don't know if i'm gonna continue with mma i know it's not a poetic answer like oh, i'm in love with mma i'm gonna keep doing it forever um i honestly don't know i could be done with it in six months i could stay another five years mm. thank you so much for your time today fernanda i appreciate it thank you for having me have a good night thank you for talking you too thank you for having me bye 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 Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.